everyone, and welcome again to another episode of A1 Insights. I'm your host, Sophia Navard, and on this episode, we'll be discussing perinatal bereavement. To close out Perinatal Bereavement Month, and to commence our bereavement series, we are joined by Dr. Maryam Huti. Maryam, thank you again for joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Always. All right, to get us started, uh, tell us a short bit about yourself and your current work within the perinatal law space. Uh, I am nurse scientist uh, for ambulatory services at UK Healthcare, uh, University of Kentucky Healthcare. I recently retired as a teacher uh, at the University of Kentucky. I am still active as a a member of the board of directors of the Perinatal Loss and Infant Death Alliance. And because of my work as a nurse scientist, I'm still doing uh, research in the area of perinatal loss. In fact, I just had a study published a couple of months ago uh, related to um, cultural differences in care after perinatal loss. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you, Marianne. All right, so to get us started, uh, we know that perinatal loss has been associated with an array of psychological and social issues. Uh, So can you start us off by giving us first an overview of the different types of perinatal loss, and then we can dive into the subsequent issues that impact the families who are affected? Sure. Um, So when most people write about perinatal loss, they consider three types of loss as to be part of that major heading. So the first is miscarriage, which is the death of a fetus prior to 20 weeks gestation. Stillbirth is the death of um, an unborn baby between 20 weeks and term. And then neonatal death is considered to be um, the death of an infant, a live-born infant within the first 28 days after birth. Um, About one in four women is uh, like one in four women are likely to have perinatal loss every time they get pregnant uh, with higher risk for highest risk in the United States among African-American women. Um, So there, when you think about the huge numbers of people who are experiencing this, it becomes a major public health problem, uh, women and families. Um, So, We know uh, and have known for a while that perinatal loss increases psychological issues like severe anxiety, depression, and increased suicidal ideation. Uh, We've known for a while that it's very hard on the couple relationship, that uh, couples who experience a perinatal loss have up to four times the rate of divorce compared to uh, couples who have given birth but have not experienced a perinatal loss. What a lot of people don't recognize is that the rate of perinatal loss is about 10 times that of uh, sudden infant death syndrome, uh, and that there are there are health problems, physical health problems, as well as psychological issues that can result from highly intense grief, such as things like hypertension, weight gain, diabetes, heart disease, substance abuse. Um, And those major health problems can lead to up to a twofold increased risk of premature death of bereaved parents, and that risk lasts for at least 15 years beyond the baby's death. 
Um, and in addition to that, there has been some research that has found that families who have perinatal losses are at higher risk of experiencing severely reduced work productivity because of their grief. And because they are less productive at work, they have more risk of losing their jobs and uh, experiencing increased economic deprivation. So it's a huge problem among childbearing uh, families. Okay, okay. All right, Marianne, um, in addition to this, can you tell us more about the perinatal grief intensity scale that you developed, please? Um, so this is a, a scale that uh, was about 30 years in the making, and we had six or seven different studies to evaluate it, uh, to make sure that it is reliable and valid. We wanted to release it as a clinical tool, not as a research tool, although it's being used in research, um, but particularly for clinicians uh, to be able to identify um, men and women who are most at risk of experiencing highly intense grief. Earlier in my life, uh, for about 30 years, uh, or actually 35 years, I practiced as a women's health nurse practitioner, and I was responsible for doing grief follow-up for um, couples in our practice who had had losses. But when, you, when you're doing that kind of work in a big practice, it's really hard to identify who truly needs follow-up because in my own research, what I've found is that not every person who experiences a loss will have a grief reaction. And among those who do have a grief reaction, only about 30% of them will have a severe, highly intense grief response. But if they do, those are the people who are likely to have severe anxiety, severe depression, suicidal ideation, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, really significant mental health issues. So I wanted to come up with a way to identify who are those people so that I could provide referrals for mental health follow-up early in the process instead of waiting a year or six months or nine months or two years for people to, to really be falling apart and uh, not have the support that they need. So the perinatal grief intensity scale is a 14-item scale that um, very uh, reliably and validly uh, can predict which um, people within that uh, who have had an, a perinatal loss are most likely to develop severe depression, anxiety, and PTSD in the first, say, three to five months after uh, use after screening them. So it's a screening tool, and I recommend that people use it about two to six weeks after the loss because couples really need to have some time in the in that experience to figure out what their support systems are and whether or not they're going to have their needs met. The perinatal loss uh, intensity scale is based on three major concepts. How real is this baby and pregnancy and baby within to the family? Because unless the baby is real to them, they, they don't ascribe like personhood to it. 
Um, but once they do start thinking of this baby as a son or a daughter, give it a name, then those are the couples who are likely to have much higher intensity grief. The other two factors that I found influence grief intensity are their ability to confront others when things are not going as they wish that they would in that grief experience and uh, the congruence of their actual loss with the way they wish it could go if they have to go through it. So um, in couples who are most likely to have highly intense grief, it's those who um, perceive the, the baby as a son or a daughter, who find themselves unable to um, talk to other people when they say and do hurtful things, and who perceive their experience as not at all like they wish it was if they have to go through it. Whereas couples who are less likely to have an extremely intense grief response are those who do not perceive the, the baby as a son or a daughter um, and who have not gotten attached to that baby prenatally, who are able to confront others when you know they say or do hurtful things and say, you know, it really hurts my feelings when you say that or some such thing so that the people around them can alter their behavior. And then, or whose actual experience is, is about as good as it's going to get, given that they have to go through that loss. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Great work, Marianne. Thank you so much. Um, and how can our nurses um, access the perinatal grief intensity scale? Well, uh, if they're on ResearchGate, it's published on ResearchGate, and the items are actually in my jargon. Um, uh, publications, but if they would like a copy of the uh, actual tool there and they're not on ResearchGate, then they are welcome to contact me and I'd be happy to send it to them. Um, my email address is marianne.huddy at uky.edu and um, I'd be happy to send it to them. Awesome. Thank you, Marianne. All right. So moving right along, um, can we talk about the transcultural aspects of perinatal loss? So absolutely. Um, yeah, I really want to touch on you know your study, the most recent study that you did on um, Arab Muslim per- perceptions okay. of perinatal loss care well, in the U.S. We know that uh, from a cross cultural point of view, that in the U.S., African American families and immigrant families have the highest risk of develop of having a perinatal loss. So it's much, much higher than the, the one in four type risk that we are usually, uh, uh, that we're used to. For example, in um, African American uh, families, they have uh, of these different kinds of problems that lead to infant mortality, they have the highest risk for birth defects, preterm labor, SIDS, respiratory distress, and maternal complications that can lead to uh, uh, perinatal loss. So there's, there is more work than ever before in the area of uh, African-American couples' experience of perinatal grief. But there's not very much research on 
other cultural groups. So for example, um, uh, we had an issue uh, of a, uh, an Arab Muslim family in my community of Louisville, Kentucky, that was really not cared for in the most ideal way. And uh, it led me to doing this study with a former student of mine, actually two former students of mine, who, uh, one of whom is Arab Muslim. And so we created, uh, what we were interested in learning is uh, what are Arab Muslim immigrants' perceptions of perinatal loss care in the United States? And is what we're doing congruent with their culture? And if not, what would they prefer instead? And so we created a, an instrument uh, based on the, what we read in the literature and then uh, surveyed um, Arab Muslim uh, families in our community. Uh, one of the things that was interesting for me to learn is that as I went through the literature on um, the care of Muslim families after perinatal loss, I couldn't find a single study. It is all based on opinion rather than on evidence, research evidence. And so it said to me that there was a real need for this type of survey. Um, when we created our survey, we it started out in English, but we had it translated into Arabic by an official translator. And 90% of our um, participants completed the uh, um, Arabic version of it. So we had about 80 participants in the study, and we found that there was no difference in how the sample responded according to type of loss um, or uh, age or other kinds of demographics. What was important is how long they had been in the U.S. because uh, there was a little bit of difference between those who had been in the U.S. longer compared to those who had been in the U.S. less time. Um, but our findings, I, I think, were kind of interesting in that um, there were some things that we specifically do uh, as part of our Western culture related to perinatal loss care, like seeing and holding the baby. And, you know, there's not, a, there's some literature uh, in, in the Muslim, uh, about the Muslim culture that would say, oh, this is a culture who would not want to see and hold the baby. But that was not necessarily what we found to be true. 100% of our survey participants preferred a female provider. Um, the next highest uh, uh, area was that they would want their spouse to be able to whisper the call of worship to the, into the baby's ear. But after that, um, seeing and holding the baby was very important to them. And then having the baby buried within 24 hours was important. Now that puts that's hard for us, given all the things that we have to do. But um, for this culture, it's really, really important. And if there's any way to do that, uh, it's critical. Uh, we have Bibles in our um, uh, rooms in the hospital, but we don't have copies of the Quran, and we should. Um, we found that uh, people who have uh, who are from an Arab Muslim culture would like to have members of their mosque 
uh, to have access to the baby so they could prepare the baby for burial. Because if we wait until 24 hours before we release the baby, then um, there's still a whole lot of other steps that are done within this culture to get that baby properly prepared for burial. We can easily do things like turning the baby on the right side whenever we lay it in the bassinet after death. Um, because that uh, they Muslim Arab Muslims perceive that as being facing Mecca, and that is uh, preferred. So there are a lot of things that we learned from this study. One of the other interesting things that the literature says is that uh, Muslim families would not consider um, uh, having um, uh, an autopsy under any condition. But we found 25% of our uh, participants would consider having an autopsy if it would give them more information. And, and so I think that uh, the bottom line to for me from this study is that we need to be really careful about not assuming anything about uh, people who are in any way different from us, that we need to offer all of the things that we would normally offer and not assume that they will not want it. But we should also be really sensitive to the fact that there could be significant cultural differences. And so it's, it's important to ask people, uh, how can I make this experience better for, for you? If, if you go back to the way that I think about loss, uh, in regard to reality, confront others and congruence. When you ask people, you know, how can I make this better for you? What could I do that would make this less stressful? Um, that's actually in, in increasing the congruence of their loss experience. And uh, it's only going to make things better for them over time. And you can do that with any culture. So, um, I don't think we have to be experts on every culture, but I think we have to be very careful not to be judgmental and to uh, be open to uh, the needs of all of our patients. All right. Wonderful work, Marianne. Thank you again. Um, let's see, moving right along to the next question. So we tend to forget about the fathers, right, in these situations. And so you briefly highlighted that uh, during um, your last study, but, you know, even in your Joggin article on uh, social and professional support needs of families after perinatal loss, uh, can we briefly discuss, you know, the father's responses and perhaps some coping mechanisms for them? Right. Well, you know, there's only recently, say in the last five to 10 years, has there been a lot more focus on father's needs in the literature. Um, and a lot of those studies are still qualitative. We still need more research in the area of perinatal loss about dads. Um, but one of the things we have learned uh, is that um, just like mothers, fathers are going to have a wide variety of responses to the loss. If you go back and think about um, the fact that how real the baby is to them, whether or not they have ascribed personhood to this baby is a big factor on how they will perceive this loss. You know, moms have symptoms of pregnancy and they feel the baby move and it's constantly present for them. And 
and the literature seems to indicate that moms often will get attached to the baby sooner than fathers will. But fathers do get attached prenatally, just like mothers do. They just do it a little bit later. Um, so, or tend to, not always, but tend to. So depending upon, you know, how real the pregnancy is to the father, uh, how real that baby within is to the father, they can have a very, very significant grief response, just like mothers can. The problem is that with perinatal loss, other people in the circle of this bereaved family often don't recognize the intensity and the, the importance of that loss experience to them. We call that disenfranchised grief. And fathers have doubly disenfranchised grief because if we're lucky, our significant others will say, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss to the mother. But they often don't say anything like that to the father, not recognizing that the fathers can have really significant experience as well. So they get very, very little support. Um, they tend to turn to their uh, partner for most of their support, but the problem is that the partner may or may not be able to give much support in the middle of this crisis. So it's important for dads to, just like with moms, to seek support um, when they're not getting it from their family and friends and, and work colleagues, to seek it out in other ways. Um, to ask for what they need, to not expect themselves to be strong all the time, because that's an unrealistic expectation. We put that on fathers in our society, and I just think it's really unfair. Um, and, uh, and hopefully over time, we will find better ways to support fathers and make this uh, experience less... Uh, less difficult for them as well. More recently, there are, there are um, online support groups specifically for fathers now that are developing. And I think that's a really important uh, option for couple support because they need to have a way to talk to other people and share their experience um, with others who have had similar types of experiences. Mm -hmm. You're right. Okay. Um, so last but not least, uh, can we talk about the effects of perinatal loss on our nurses? Well, I'm, I'm was so glad that you wanted to talk about this because it is a big issue for nurses. You know, we're experiencing the highest rates of compassion fatigue and burnout in nursing that, that we have ever had uh, as a result of the COVID uh, pandemic. And nurses among all health care professionals have the highest rates of compassion fatigue and burnout, which I, I find interesting in terms of what is it that we're doing with nurses that make them more at risk for compassion fatigue and burnout. Um, there's not a lot of literature about uh, obstetric nurses. Most of the literature is more general than that. Um, but there is a little bit of research, most of it qualitative, about um, nurses and how they seek uh, support. Uh, in, in a study that I did 
2016, we found that after witnessing a traumatic birth, nurses tended to use coworkers, family, and friends as their so- sources of support. Um, there was a, uh, a study that was done of 144 labor and delivery nurses, and this is about the only quantitative study that I've been able to find. And in this study, they found that 84.7% of nurses, OB nurses report um, witnessing a traumatic birth. And those nurses had very high secondary traumatic stress scores that led them to um, coping mechanisms such as leaving their jobs, calling in sick, asking not to take care of patients who have had losses again. I think it's, it's difficult to learn how to do this work. It takes time. And it's not something that we need to be throwing nurses into without a lot of, of help and support. Um, so it definitely has an effect on nurses. And, uh, and that's not going to change anytime soon. All right. All right. So as we come to a close, Marianne, um, here at AWAN, we have, you know, we have a multitude of perinatal bereavement resources. And so in addition to these, um, what strategies and tools do you recommend for our nurses who are listening? Um, and most importantly, how can they best care for themselves and the bereaved families that they care for? Sure. Uh, another wonderful question. Um, I love all of the resources that, uh, A1 offers on perinatal bereavement. Uh, But if nurses want additional resources, then I would point them to a couple of uh, different areas. One would be to consider getting advanced training in perinatal bereavement. If, if, If you are a nurse who just is scared to death about entering a room where there has been a perinatal bereavement, uh, or a perinatal loss, I, you know, I, I suggest Resolve Through Sharing as a way to get advanced training. Resolve Through Sharing offers face-to-face as well as uh, online training, and it's the gold standard among uh, healthcare providers for perinatal bereavement training. I would also encourage nurses to consider joining the Perinatal Loss and Infant Death Alliance. It's called PLIDA, P-L-I-D-A, and it's uh, you can find it at PLIDA.org. And PLIDA is uh, open to uh, all healthcare providers as well as bereaved families, and it gives, um, particularly for nurses, nurses are the largest group uh, among healthcare providers who are members of PLIDA, and they can find things like um, questions that can be answered. They can ask questions about best practices and get good, good answers. They can find position statements and guidelines related to perinatal bereavement. And lots of, there's a whole section on brand new research related to this area. Um, they can access free webinars about perinatal bereavement that are really helpful. Um, They can uh, join a private Facebook group and talk about their experiences uh, there. And um, they have discounted rates to the uh, International Perinatal Bereavement Conference that PLIDA hosts every two years. Uh, 
So I think that that's another place where they can get a lot of support uh, from a professional organization specific to this topic. One of the things that I have become more passionate about uh, related to helping nurses is uh, something I, I just finished doing a, a talk at uh, the Plyta Conference last week, and it was on compassion fatigue in nurses. And uh, because we had it had been two years since they asked me, I had a lot of time to to get a deep dive into this research and literature. And um, one of the things that I found particularly helpful is a book that I read called The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a uh, Fractured World. It's by Jamil Zaki, uh, Z-A-K-I. And this book really changed the way I think about um, compassion fatigue. You know, we we don't do a very good job in nursing education about teaching nurses how to manage difficult situations um, like perinatal bereavement. We, we encourage them to be empathetic and we want them to show compassion at all times. But the problem is that if they don't have really good boundaries, and we don't teach boundaries very well in nursing education, but if they don't have really good boundaries, it's very easy to take on the pain of the family as your own. Um, Zaki calls that, um, that type of situation a less healthy uh, type of um, empathy because uh, you're feeling the pain of the family. Instead, he he suggests empathy that is more related to caring rather than sharing feelings with the family. Um, And caring types of empathy allow you to be motivated to help them and to be compassionate without taking on their feelings as well. Um, And he says that, you know, if that compassion fatigue is all about too much sharing and not enough caring about, and uh, it can lead to burnout in nurses. So um, this book was very instrumental in the way that I think about things. And I really hope that your readers, if they're feeling burned out, will read this book because it was, it's very interesting. It's an easy read. It's an interesting read. And um, I think it would be useful to them. Awesome. Well, thank you for those suggestions, Uh, Marianne. Thank you again for joining us today and for sharing your insights with our listeners. Do you have any parting thoughts? Oh, I've got a ton of them, but... <laughs> probably too long for the time that we have left, but I sure appreciate being invited to talk and please let your listeners know that in this stage of my life, I'm, I'm very much uh, interested in helping other people and mentoring other people. So if, if they need some help, I'm happy to help them myself or to guide them to someone who can. So awesome. ask them to not hesitate to contact me if I can help. Oh, yes, ma'am. Thank you again. And hopefully we'll have you back on for part two. Okay. 
right. Yes. Well, thank uh, you again for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. All right. And to all of our listeners, uh, please be sure to visit a1.org slash perinatal-bereavement-resources for additional tools, including literature and communication strategies to help you and those you care for cope with perinatal loss. Uh, thank you again for joining us. And until next time, this has been Sophia Navard for A1 Insights.